Coming up this hour, news about Eddie Van Halen, Greg Laurie. We're going to talk a little COVID, and we're joined by Jeff Holsclaw. You're listening to The Common Good. everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. Happy Tuesday to you. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. It is the nicest day we've had in quite a while. Or is that wrong? I've just been in my basement a lot. I don't know. They could have all been nice days and I'm just locked here in the dungeon most of the time. This this stands out, right, as a as a nice day by your metric? Absolutely. Like the the beginning of this week was cold and it was like, uh-oh, winter's coming. But now today, and it's supposed to be like this for the rest of the week, it is fall, sunny, blue sky, and warm. No, this is gorgeous out today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so I have a couple of stories I want to cover, and then one toward the end that we'll spend the bulk of the time on. The first that just broke about an hour or so ago, uh, legendary guitarist and co-founder of Van Halen, Eddie Van Halen, has died after a long battle with throat cancer. Uh, Were you a Van Halen fan? Are you? I guess you still could be. Are you a Van Halen fan, Brian? Uh, yeah, they, they, I do enjoy their music. Here's a really random story. When I was really little, uh, I remember buying an, an audio tape, a cassette, the very first one I ever bought. And for some reason at Kmart, I bought uh, Van Halen's 1984. No kidding. <laughs> As like an eight year old. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, wow. I remember when I first started playing in a, in a punk band, we were doing like punk covers of all these, you know, billboard hits. And one of them was uh-huh. Jump. I don't know why. Oh, I love that song. I don't yeah, know yeah. why. We did a, like a speed punk version of it that I, I still think I was like 12 or 13. And, uh, so, yeah, our uh, our prayers and love to the family. I know mm-hmm. that it has been a, a long, long struggle there. Another story that's, um, well, it's close to my heart right now. Uh, Jailer faces <laughs> cruelty charge for playing Baby Shark on loop and is deemed inhumane. Did you see this story? I did not. I did not see this, but it's hilarious. I agree entirely. Obviously, there's more to the story than just this, but uh, I currently have... Probably five or six things in our house that play the song Baby Shark. And really? there's, yes, and there's multiple versions of it now. And Twinkle Twinkle Little Shark. And I mean, just awful, no terrible. So, like, I saw, I, I almost did like a legitimate spit take when I read this headline. I was drinking coffee and I saw it. I was like, no, no way. I got to send that to my wife. So, that's more of a weird story. I don't know if you have any commentary there or not. I do. Uh, here's what I don't understand. Okay. Like my kids are older now, right? I've told you they're 16, 13 and 11 or so. I almost forgot how old my kids were. There. <laughs> I noticed uh, <laughs> when they were little, Baby Shark was a like a song that would be on things, but it wasn't like this huge deal. Like I remember having a toy that had it and I remember taking the kids to swim lessons and they had them sing Baby Shark like splashing in the water. But it was like just another thing. Like it wasn't this big deal. And then somebody told me when my kids were older, like your kids age that it's everywhere and this huge deal. And I'm like, what made Baby Shark a big deal? I I don't even know. But yeah, it's not like it's a new song. So it's kind of weird that it's big now. You know, it's really strange to me, Brian, that you had more to say about this Baby Shark article than the passing of Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> you were like, I told you 1984, like before we went live, you're like, I don't have anything to say. And then like baby shark, you're like, have I got a story for you? I'm like, oh. I'm like, I got to know this. <laughs> well, that was just an odd story. We mentioned it briefly yesterday. The, uh, the Greg Laurie update. There's a whole article again by our friend Kate Shellnut over at Christianity right. today. Any, uh, any takeaways from, from this one? I think one of the takeaways, a couple of things. So Greg Laurie, who has a show here on AM 1160 and, uh, very well-known pastor out of California. 
uh, a he was in Washington D.C. for the the prayer time at the uh, at the Washington Monument. Then also, I believe I could be wrong, but I think he was in the Rose Garden um, for Amy Coney Barrett's thing. But it might just have been the march or the or the uh, the prayer time. Um, so many people who were in Washington D.C. during that weekend have gotten COVID, who were around the president and other politicians. So that's the first thing that stands out. Yeah, uh, and he does also say, and I hope he means it, Greg Laurie, and I have no reason to believe he doesn't. He says, uh, "I wish we could all set aside partisan ideas and pull together to do everything we can defeat we can to defeat this virus and bring our nation back." I want to say amen to that. Yeah, uh, to both sides of the aisle. He's saying, let's stop politicizing the coronavirus. And so I think that's a good word from Greg Laurie. So prayers for him. He says he's doing really well right now. And uh, but, you know, anytime someone is 67 and mm-hmm. has coronavirus, there's there comes with that some uh, some worries. So hopefully all goes well for Greg. Laurie. Well, I should also mention that uh, Greg Laurie can be heard weekdays on AM 1160 at 330 a.m., 7 a.m. and 2 p.m. I uh, I'm I'm amazed that we have 3:30 a.m. programming like that I is. Am too. I mean, I guess there's people that work all sorts of different shifts and stuff, so that makes sense. But uh, definitely, our prayers go out to him and all the people affected. This next one is also COVID related. We don't have to spend a lot of time on it. Did you see this this tweet from the office of the governor of California? Uh, I did not until you sent it my way. The office of the governor, that being Gavin Newsom, wrote. Mm-hmm. Going out to eat with members of your household this weekend? Don't forget to keep your mask on in between bites. Do your part to keep those around you healthy. So when you saw this, what did you think about his advice? There? Well, uh, to be fair, uh, I saw this on the account Not The Bee. Are you familiar with Not The Bee? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> so you, you have Babylon Bee, which I've shared some of my thoughts about. I think that they were... They started off one way and now they're very, very different. And yeah. I don't I don't spend a lot of time reading their stuff anymore. But they have another account that's fairly interesting, actually called Not the Bee. And it's stories that are a little crazy that people think might be satire that aren't. So their post was like, you know, full snark ahead. Like it was extra doses of snark. So like that was like probably my, that was my introduction to the tweet. Um, but in their article, they're like, here's the screenshot, by the way, for when they inevitably delete it. It's as far as. I've seen it's not been deleted, so it's a it's a position they're you know they're serious about they're standing by, but I yeah, um, in between bites, to, <laughs> why go out? <laughs> well, that's kind of what I was gonna say. Yeah, if if that actually okay, that's a good point. If that actually is true, I'm probably not gonna go out. That's exactly. <laughs> you, you know what I mean. Exactly. Like that's again, I it's it's catching all sorts of heat online right now. So, um, to each his own. I don't I don't know. In 15 seconds or less, your your take on it? Uh, I think. Uh, as we've stated on this show before, I, I am pro mask. I was just having this conversation with somebody today. Uh, masks have been very politicized, but to, this feels really far to me. If you're going to go out to eat, put it on between uh, between bites when you're with your family. Seems a bit much. If that were ever mandated, which it never would, I just wouldn't go out anymore. Yeah. So that feels like it's gone too far the other way. Yeah, because you are a self-proclaimed rule follower. Isn't that right? That makes sense. You're like, well, that if, that's, if that's the rule, then I will be making the choice to stay inside. Uh, lastly, right. and I, I don't have a, an angle necessarily. I just saw a bunch of people commenting on this. Uh, headline reads, Biden defines $400,000 a year as wealthy. Here's what that buys in a big city. The, the tweet really was claiming that in some cities, 400 grand a year kind of makes you maybe upper middle class. What, what do you think of, of this discussion? I, I got to be honest. When I read this article and I saw that there were people pushing back uh, and 
again, you and I are pastors, so that's going <laughs> to that's going right. to play into this. But when I saw people arguing the four hundred grand was not wealthy, I was like, whoa! At first, <laughs> you know what I thought when I first read this headline? I thought the uh, debate was over. I thought he said that forty grand was wealthy, and that's what people were going crazy wow. about. And so when it was defined at four hundred grand, like. I disagree with Joe Biden on a lot of things, but uh, I would define 400 grand a year as wealthy. And some of you in your car right now are very angry with me. Go, what do you, you don't know what you're talking about? From my perspective, 400 grand wealthy. I'm going to go with that. <laughs> well, and it's it's been a while since I've given this kind of generosity talk, but often when I have preached on it in the past, I'll do um, some like global analytics. And the last one that I can remember is, you know, like if I think it was, if you make $60,000 a year, you're in the top, I think it was 2% of the globe. So at a, at a global scale, and again, these, these are fuzzy numbers because it's, it's been a minute. But uh, yeah, they're, again, part of what CNBC is trying to make the case for, like, yeah, but in some big cities, that's only upper middle class. True. To me, that is a, maybe that, I mean, I feel like I say this a lot and then we never actually follow up, but that might be an interesting talking point about, you know, how, how do we actually define wealth? How we define it here in the West is very different than, you know, other parts of the world. Uh, I think part of the problem is, like I, ha- I remember hearing Andy Stanley say years ago, no one thinks they're wealthy, but everyone knows someone else who is. And <laughs> and he kind of like lists out like if you make this or have a car or have a roof, like here's how you kind of measure up at a global level. Either way, I think it's it's an important discussion. And if we're you know, if we are saying it's not it's not wealthy, then uh, I think that leads that could lead to some really interesting theological and yeah. sociological places. Either way, all that's over at our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think. Coming up next, I think we can call him friend of the show, Jeff Holsclaw. Yes. He is a professor at Northern Seminary. Recently wrote a book called Does God Really Like Me? And he just launched Grassroots Theology. He's going to join us for two segments coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We're thrilled to have back on the show. It was such a fun time last conversation. Welcome back to the show, the one and only Jeff Holsclaw. Yeah, hey, it's great to be here. I'm so glad to be with you guys. Well, the feeling is mutual, my man. Would you take just a second and uh, introduce yourself to everybody? Yeah, I am a pastor in West Michigan in Grand Rapids. I also teach at Northern Seminary, which is out there in the Chicago land, uh, just uh, published a book with my wife called Does God Really Like Me, which we had talked about, I think, a little bit ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have a new venture because of all this free time that we pastors have these days <laughs> uh, called Grassroots Theology, uh, which me and my friend are putting together to talk about messy faith and for everyday people. So just trying to get back to the roots of faith. Love it. Yeah. Oh, Jeff, we do have lots to talk about, but I'm just curious as a pastor, something we've been asking most of the pastors we've had on, just now we're six, seven months into the COVID uh, coronavirus pandemic. How's it going for you? What's it like being a pastor amidst COVID for you? Well, uh, we actually, my family and I, we actually just recovered from getting COVID. So we, oh, gosh. we were, we got light symptoms. Uh, my wife is uh, still pretty weak. So, you know, it's like real for us. Um, wow. And uh, but thankfully, you know, it was kind of a light kind of dose, I guess. Um, so we're fine. We're recovered. But we're, you know, in quarantine and like I didn't get it. So like my wife and I were separate from each other for like two weeks. And that was like wow. terrible. So and and people, you know, have been in our church has been getting it or not getting it. And so it's been a roller coaster. We just had a long meeting. Like when or how do we restart in-person meetings? Mask, not mask. Do we just kind of keep it virtual for the whole mm. rest of the winter? So it's been a headache. It's been difficult. It's also 
been great to see the different fruit that's been growing in, in people's lives. Like this prayer kind of group has really started in our church. It's just kind of been going. So it's been a roller coaster. It's been crazy. But, mm-hmm. um, and I just, I, I launched with our, our youth group this, I was like, we're just going to embrace it. This whole year is from chaos to Christ. We're just going to be like the chaotic waters and the spirit is hovering over the waters. And then God speaks and new things are like, we're just going to embrace that mm-hmm. chaos is happening, but let's find Christ in it. So, so mm-hmm. that's what we're doing. I love that, man. What, what's the world of higher education been like? Northern Seminary is is actually like the sister seminary of my alma mater, Judson University. And some of my favorite thinkers and authors and teachers and minds are a part of Northern. What what has that been like in this season for you guys? Uh, well, Northern specifically, I think, has been doing pretty well. Uh, they kind of made the shift to kind of live streaming classes about four years ago. And so they were kind of primed for it. Whereas other institutions are like, Oh, we're going to figure out this zoom kind of classroom thing. And Northern had already done it for other, sorry if this is like a, an ad for Northern, but so <laughs> it's been, it's been going pretty well. Um, I know like things have been, you know, tough for small schools. Uh, my son is just starting college and things like that. And it's just like, you know, online is it classes, people are dropping like flies left and right. So yeah, I mean, it's just, it's part of the, part of the chaos. Hmm. You said you just have started a thing called grassrootstheology.com, and I'm just on their website, on your the website. Which is around barely on launchable, so sorry if anybody it's, else visits. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's it's fun to look at something as it's getting started. I guess uh, help our people understand what's the heartbeat behind it. Why did, with all the stuff you've gone going on, why are you taking the time to do this? Well, because I really believe, uh, you know, I'm a seminary professor. I've been a pastor for a long time, but, you know, there's just a lot of bad theology that harms ordinary people, like everyday people. And, uh, and so a lot of times people feel like it's not okay to have a messy faith. It's not okay to have doubts and questions or to kind of really tackle the difficult topics in the Bible or in faith. And so we just want to go after those things and say, Hey, you know what? Your doubts and questions, instead of being the things that you should be afraid of, what if those were the fertilizer that just like really brought new faith to your life. And so mm-hmm. we're just trying to like, we're still just getting started. It's been a dream just kind of coming out of the summer with a, a friend out in California. And so um, we're just kind of like wrote a little manifesto and trying to, you know, <laughs> we're concerned, we're concerned on two sides, like the hack theologians, you know, with the podcasts and the kind of the prophets and, you know, like we're worried about the influence they have on the church. And then also the elite kind of theologians, you know, who live in ivory towers, who don't understand like the day-to-day problems. So we kind of want to get back to the grassroots mm talk about theology, but in a way that everybody can like grow and benefit from. See, I, I love that for so many reasons because I, I love academia, but I'm just way too much a practitioner. Like I, the grassroots language for me has always sort of spoken to me. And I want to hone in on something you said, because I imagine maybe some people didn't fully understand. We talk about how theology can be dangerous. You know, somebody listening might be thinking like theology. I thought that was just about, you know, intellectual ascent regarding spiritual things. How in the world could it ever actually be dangerous in real life? Can you speak to that idea a little bit more? Well, I like uh, I think it can do damage to people's faith is when like theological systems are just kind of foisted on people's problems. You know, it's like, oh, you prayed and uh, God didn't answer and your wife still died. Like, but God's sovereignly in control. That's the theology. And so you shouldn't feel bad. Mm. Uh, it's like, mm. ah, that doesn't help. Or, uh, you know, it's the questions of how does, you know, God answer prayer. But also, I mean, even like, should we pray for the president when he's sick? Like, mm. what does that mean? Uh, and, you know, people on the left and the right are just like losing their minds about whether it's a good idea to pray for the president. Right. And so people, 
like I think harm is done to uh, how we read the Bible. Harm is done to people's understanding of who God is. Um, and, and that makes me mad as both a pastor and a professor. I get upset by that. And so, you know, <laughs> I think we can do better as a church. Hmm. Yeah. And we're going to jump into that post about praying for the president. thought it was just fascinating what you wrote. But before that, uh, as a pastor and as a professor, someone who thinks through these things, uh, where are you at right now just with how the church or evangelicalism is doing around politics as we get to this election? Are you discouraged? Are you encouraged? What are you seeing out there right now? Um, I'm pretty discouraged um, because I'm discouraged because I believe the church should be witnessing to peace, to uh, reconciliation, to enemy love, but also to uh, justice and kind of the welfare of all people. And so I'm really frustrated that things are so uh, broken up left and right. Uh, and so uh, that's, <laughs> I'm not really an angry person, but I'm getting like more and more frustrated that, you know, <laughs> that the gospel gets split up between groups like, you know, um, if I'm pro-life, you know, I'm over here. And if I'm, you know, pro kind of Black Lives Matter, then I'm over here. And it's like, I, I'm pretty sure Jesus can be pro both those things. Right. Uh, and yet our, our parties tell us that we can't. Uh, I know my church, a lot of churches where, you know, people are leaving because the pastor mm -hmm. is either too liberal, not liberal enough, too conservative or not conservative enough. Mm -hmm. And it's like pastors in this whole COVID thing cannot win at any, like, <laughs> yeah. we're all just losing because, you know, everybody is so amped up and you, unless you're saying it exactly like someone on the right or the left, they're, you know, they're going to leave. And it's just like, wow. So I'm frustrated. It's, we're not doing a good job. Mm. The evangelical church um, and the church in general is uh, we're in a tough place, but with all that said, I'm, I am kind of a perennially hopeful guy. So I'm still just praying that there will be like this, this goodness that will, that people will kind of just shake off the cloud of like, we're putting our faith in the wrong things. Uh, we're putting our faith in false gods. You know, can we just come back to, to who Jesus is and the mm -hmm. liberation salvation that he's offered us and what, all that means. So I'm still, I'm still clinging on to hope here. <laughs> <laughs> I just listened to an interview with Cornell West and he said, um, I'm, I'm not optimistic, but I'm hopeful. And I thought, well, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. so Cornell West, but like, that's a lot of how, you know, Brian and I are both pastors. So we feel what you're saying, like, man, it feels like we can't win. And then you slap a radio show on that. <laughs> and that could certainly <laughs> exacerbate some of the, uh, the tensions and disagreements, which leads me to what I want to ask you about coming up in the next segment. You wrote an article, uh, just yesterday called Four Ways to Pray for a Sitting President. This is something that Brian and I were talking about just a couple of days ago, and I want to ask you about it coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is still Ian Simpkins, and his name is still Brian Fromm, and we're still glad that you are still here. You can find us online. You can Google us. I don't need to fill you in on everything all the time, but we are thrilled to have for a second segment author, podcaster, theologian, professor, all-around swell guy, Jeff Holsclaw. And uh, I mentioned before the break that he wrote an article called Four Ways to Pray for a Sitting President and an Exhortation to the Right and Left. So you're offering an exhortation to both sides, Jeff, which is dangerous territory, as we were discussing <laughs> during the break. But I'd love just to start, walk us, walk us through this blog a little bit, because I found it incredibly insightful and, and actually really helpful for, for me personally. Yeah, well, so maybe on all of your timelines, also on Facebook, my friends on the left wanted to take Trump's illness as a chance to advocate for healthcare activism, to right. point out the hypocrisy of X, Y, and Z. People on the right said, hey, we need to pray for Trump's healing. 
people on the left are aghast that people on the right would pray for Trump's healing. And then people on the right are aghast that everyone on the left is making this a political issue, right? So it's like everyone is just separating about what it means to pray uh, for like a world leader. And so I was like, ah, I just need to like sit down and think about this um, a little bit. And so I started, I just had these like four points. The first one is, is that we should be praying for peace. And this comes straight out of first Timothy uh, chapter two is that we're supposed to pray for the Kings so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives. So pray for the King, pray for the president, pray for your world leaders that they would allow all of us to live peaceful and quiet lives, whatever that might mean to you. Hmm. Uh, the second one though is uh, that we should be praying for our world, world leaders to repent uh, that God that Christ is, you know, like Psalm 2, Proverbs and other places. Daniel was rebuked by Nathan. Like we can call world leaders to account and we could pray for their hearts to be changed. And it works. Like remember the king of Nineveh to, you know, no, uh, Jonah's chagrin, chagrin, if I could say mm. that word right. Like he <laughs> hated the fact that all of Nineveh repented, but it started with the king. And so I think we can pray for repentance too. So people on the left, you know, they all they want is for Trump to repent fine, but you can pray for yourself too. And people who want to pray for his health, uh, you can pray and acknowledge that maybe he has things to repent for. Then the mm. third point is, man, we need some per perspective, uh, is let's pray for perspective. And I just like pointed to Isaiah 40, you know, all the nations are like a drop in the bucket and Job and other mm. kind of scriptures where it's like, Hey, God is way bigger than all these kingdoms. And God's kingdom isn't defined by the right or the left, Republican or Democrat. Like God is doing something bigger. So we need to pray for some protect, uh, perspective. And then the last one was, can we pray for our enemies? Um, and I don't see people on the right or the left talking about that at all. And that was a pretty big part of Jesus's uh, life uh, and his exhortation. And he lived that. And so, um, so those are some of the things I put out there. People... Uh, on the left were really upset that I was saying that they don't pray enough. And I kind of stand by that still. And the people on the right were uh, a little upset that they don't care about justice enough. And I still also stand by that. So I guess I, like, I think I understand you all in the show, make everyone mad all the time. So there we go. <laughs> That's the new slogan. It's, that is our slogan. That is, I, I'm just curious, you know, Jeff, praying for our leaders seems to be a pretty biblical uh, uh, concept. And, uh, and before people on the right feel good about, oh, see, the left won't pray. I remember one time in our church when I talked about praying for President Obama, the people on the other side got really mad at me. Uh, I'm just curious, mm -hmm. why do you think this is such a controversial? Like, it seems like low hanging fruit to be like Christians should pray for their president, regardless of if you voted for them or not. So what's the pushback you've heard? And it, just in general, why do you think there's pushback even to that concept? Um. So I think it goes to kind of our broader, our broader tribalistic kind of understanding of things is that we we selectively apply scripture to how it suits us based on which team is winning. And so if you're conservative, Trump's in office, then, you know, and we get this, you know, as pastors, oh, we really need to be praying for our pastor. Let's do a prayer service. Let's pray for our, for our, our president, I mean. Uh, and then, you know, on the other side, you know, when Obama was president, when you say that, then the people on the right are like, how dare you? Or we should be, you know, like condemning all these X and Y. And then it's, it's the reverse, right? And so it just seems that everyone is being inconsistent and not actually living out Jesus's way. Uh, and so that, again, that's kind of what gets me frustrated is like, let's get back to our, you know, reality, which is Jesus. Let's be conformed to Christ and let's do the things he did. He called out rich people and he lived and dined with rich people. He liberated poor people and he called poor people to repentance. Like, 
these, all these things are part of Jesus's life. So let's not just kind of select and choose based off of what's happening on the headlines and pull out a Jesus story and then apply it to kind of <laughs> score points against the other team. Hmm. So that just drives me crazy. <laughs> one of the things too, that I've realized is that one of the benefits, if I could call it a benefit of enemy love of praying for your enemies and those who persecute you is it actually also guards your own heart from bitterness. Like there can be a selfish motive that I think is okay. Like, Oh, me praying for who I deem an enemy is as much about guarding my my own spiritual health as anything. I, I remember this is probably five or six years ago, and I wrote a, a blog about praying for ISIS. That was not a popular blog. Oh, um, wow. Let me, let me tell <laughs> wow. you. And like my takeaways were like, number one, we must pray that the evil being done is stopped. But two, we could pray that those enacting evil would would trust in Jesus. And I'm, I'm rereading it. And I, there's a line in here I said. I don't know a whole lot about love, but I know for certain that it's impossible to both love someone and to wish them an eternity in hell. And I, mm-hmm. I was like, dang, Ian, 2014, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> the, the million dollar question is, how do we actually do this? Like you're a professor and a pastor and you have a blog and a podcast. And that's that's one way that I think you're calling people to this. How to maybe to get back to the grassroots part, how do everyday people like live this out differently? Can you give us sort of, you know, what Peterson called the long obedience in the same direction? kind of vision or tools or maybe even just baby steps to do today towards what you're talking about? Well, I think like we're talking about praying for enemy as if it's advanced, like, uh, you know, high level spiritual activity. I actually think Jesus thought that that was like the baby step. Mm. Um, and so we do need a little perspective on it. So Jesus is living in a time where the Roman empire is actively persecuting, oppressing, and, you know, colonizing um, Israel. And, you know, Roman soldiers can basically just ask you and do do anything and harass you at all times. And Jesus is saying, hey, you got to love those people. Uh, So how do you love someone who, um, when you see them, your body creates a trauma response? How do you love those types of people? And I think, you know, how do you love someone who actively verbally or sexually abused you? How do you love someone who, you know, pulls you over and abuses you, uh, gives you a hard time because of the color of your skin? How do you do that? And I think Jesus, he started with, well, it doesn't just come out of nowhere. How about if you start praying for them? And I think that there's a lot of like neurological, like neuroscience data that backs this up. Like people overcome fear of dogs by, um, by thinking, not by going up to dogs and petting them immediately, right? Because you're mm. terrified if you see, you know, if you, but if you start visualizing a dog and you start getting, getting your boss, your body used to those fear responses and you start kind of like re-narrating what happens in your soul every time you think of that, um, then all of a sudden you can overcome like a fear of dog. Like that's just a medical neurological. St- and I think Jesus, you know, obviously being the son of God and the word of God, knowing how we work, it's like, if you pray for someone yeah, you're you're blessing them, but you're also learning how to deal with that bodily re- response. When I think of that Roman centurion, I get so angry because of what they did to so and so. Or when I think of that police officer, I get so or that you know my my dad or my mom or my you know whoever. Like I have to start dealing with that hmm. bodily within the story of God's love and blessing for all people. And once I can do that regularly, then I'll be ready to actually see that person and then maybe actually love them mm-hmm. in in bodily kind of ways. And so like we think of praying for our enemies as like one of the most spiritual things. It's only like what those like ladies who pray every morning can do because they're, they're so good at prayer. And I think Jesus was like, well, why don't you just start here? Why don't you just do this one thing? And so mm-hmm. we probably need to rethink what that command is even doing for us. That's great. Yeah. 
Jeff, we're so glad that you joined us. Where can people find more of your writings, hear more of you, book, website, social media? Why don't you give everybody where they can find you? Uh, well, you, I'm pretty easy to find. Jeff with a G, Holsclaw, G-E-O-F-F. I'm, I do it the cool way. Uh, <laughs> so Facebook, Facebook and Twitter, uh, I'm pretty easy to find those ways. Uh, otherwise, Jeffrey Holsclaw dot net is kind of like my you know main place and and then the new thing that we're just starting is grassrootstheology.com uh that's a messy faith for everyday people so yeah i'm not that hard to find and um i'm trying i'm actually as part of this all this free time i have i'm trying to write daily now and try to put out three to five nice. words every day so so that's that's what i'm up to I love that, man. As someone who has uh, personally benefited from your writing, please keep it up because uh, we're really, really grateful for your voice. If you're just joining us, by the way, that is Jeff Holscaw. He teaches at Northern Seminary, recently wrote a book called Does God Really Like Me? and is the co-founder of Grassroots Theology. Brother, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Oh, it was great to be with you guys. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. I don't ask it enough. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing really well. I'm oh, having a good day. I mean, that was more for them. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, that's why I left the pause there. Sometimes you ask our people, but I, the longer pause there, I'm like, oh, he's asking me. Okay. I, did, I didn't specify. And uh, in this new digital well. reality, I should specify. <laughs> I also want to know how you are. I'm glad to know. We did kind of jump in there the very uh, first segment of the hour. So shame on me, I guess, for not being more socially aware. Wow. That's almost a segue, actually. Kind of. We uh, found this article. That I thought was interesting. It's called How to Turn Small Talk into Smart Conversation. Um, this to me, especially during COVID, is quite an interesting concept because I don't know if you're good at small talk, Brian. Maybe I'll ask that. Are you good at small talk? Do you, do you feel like that's a, a strength? Yes, I think I'm good at small talk. I think sometimes I'm not good at taking small talk to something more depth or more, oh, okay. more serious. So actually, I think I have the reverse of a problem here. So interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't think I'm very good at it, to be honest. Like it's I it feel, doesn't surprise me. I feel yeah. like clunky and um and, and awkward. And yeah, it's a very it's a weird thing. So it's called how to turn small talk into smart conversation. And then it says tips from a comedian and a journalist on the art of going from small talk to big ideas. I love I love that concept. And I feel like mm -hmm. now more than ever where we have a lot less sort of like oh, bumping into so and so at the coffee shop or conversations like around the office or the water cooler. Right. So it feels like we need conversations with depth more now than ever, because what I've realized is not that like just that small talk has gone away, but most conversations are very um tactical like it's very like hey we need a zoom thing to tackle this problem or need a phone call to talk about that email going out tomorrow like it's very and maybe that's not true for you but it feels like every call or zoom has a, like a specific purpose mm -hmm. but it isn't about exploring ideas or taking a topic to greater depth it's like hey this is this is the thing that needs to get done let's figure that out real quick end call you know what i mean uh, so I've, I actually found this concept to be really, really important right now. And uh, I'd love I'd love for you to just kind of get us into it. Yeah. And again, going from a comedian and a journalist, I think makes this interesting. It says, imagine yeah. almost any situation where two or more people are gathered, a wedding reception, a job interview, two off duty cops hanging out in a, jacu in a jacuzzi. Hmm. <laughs> that had to be the comedian. Uh, <laughs> 
What do these situations have in common? Almost all of them involve people trying to talk with each other. But in these very moments where a conversation would enhance an encounter, we often fall short. We can't think of anything to say. Or worse, we do a passable job at talking. We stagger through our romantic, professional, and social worlds with the goal merely of not crashing, never considering that we might soar. We go home sweaty and puffy and eat birthday cake in the shower. (laughs) Never done that. (laughs) No comment. Uh, we at what to talk about headquarters set out to change this below a few tips for introverts and everyone else on how to turn small talk into big ideas at the next social obligation involving strangers. So before getting to this, as interesting as you were saying that it is one of the things I've missed the most about during the kind of the COVID reality is just the, Hey, let's go out to coffee just to, just to catch up. Right. Like uh, Mm -hmm. just to just to shoot the breeze a little bit. And like you said, uh, those opportunities uh, have been kind of gone away. And so uh, this journalist and this comedian give us uh, how to turn small talk into big ideas at the next social obligation involving strangers. First, (laughs) ask for stories, not answers. One way to get beyond small talk is to ask open-ended questions. Aim for questions that invite people to tell stories rather than give bland one-word answers. Instead of, how are you? How's your day? Where are you from? What do you do? What line of work are you in? What's your name? And so on. Try, what's your story? How? Uh, what did you do today? What's the strangest thing about where you grew up? What's the most interesting thing that happened at work today? How did you end up in your line of work? What does your name mean? What would you like it to mean? (laughs) What was the best part of your weekend? I like this last one. If you could teleport by blinking your eyes, where would you go right now? (laughs) So so these questions of just the normal ones, right, that we're all used to. How are you? Uh, What what do you do? Kind of digging a little deeper, but also a little more creative. uh, They're saying could really kind of jumpstart the conversation. And I've definitely found that to be true. Actually, one of the things that I feel like is the easiest art of conversation is stop talking. Like I feel like a lot of us introvert and extrovert, we often feel the need to like fill the silence with something, you know? So we just sort of, we, we can sometimes dominate or just fill it with filler, you know, it's ask these questions and then just like be quiet, like let them, let them actually yeah. answer. I, I'm amazed at how far that goes. The second one they call break the mirror. When small talk stalls out, it's often due to a phenomenon we call mirroring. In our attempts to be polite, we often answer people's questions directly, repeat their observations, or just blandly agree with whatever they say. Mirrored examples, James, it's a beautiful day. John, yes, it's a beautiful day. That's like how you and I begin the show every day. Uh, (laughs) See, by mirroring James' opinion and language, John has followed the social norm, but he's also paralyzed the discussion and missed a moment of fun. Instead, John needs to practice the art of disruption and move the dialogue forward. Non-mirrored example. James, it's a beautiful day. John, they say that the weather was just like this when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, if that actually happened. See, now James and John are talking. Be provocative. Absurdity is underrated. (laughs) You can see where the comedian got in here. That's Yeah, no kidding. The next one is leapfrog over the expected response. Hmm. Uh, An even better way to break the boring conversation mirror is to skip over the expected response and go somewhere next level instead (laughs) of... How was your flight? My flight was good. Or it's hot today. Yeah, it sure is hot. Or what's up? Hey, what's up? Instead, try these. How was your flight? Answer. I'd be more intrigued by an airline where your ticket price was based on your body weight and IQ. (laughs) Uh, Or the next one. It's hot today. Answer. 
in this dimension. Yes. <laughs> I love these. Or the or the last one. What's up? Answer. Washing your chicken just splatters the bacteria everywhere. <laughs> All right. So then they end this way. Uh, go ahead. Be bold. Upend the, ta- the dinner table conversation. Turn small talk into big ideas at the next summer wedding reception you're forced to attend. You never know which ideas will be worth spreading next. All right. I got to be honest. When I read some of these like funny ones or like where they do that, I could totally see you doing this. <laughs> <laughs> like I can literally oh, picture man. your face going in this dimension. Yes. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. Well, if you remember too, one of my goals, whenever we would leave the station together, if someone was in the elevator, it was all my goal was to try to make the person in there laugh. Like you only had, we only had four floors to do it. I, like I love stuff like this. I will say there are some environments where this is either inappropriate <laughs> Or just True. not celebrated. Like I've certainly tried some of these like more funny, goofy, and people have been like, "Hey, no, we don't talk like that here." Or we don't. I'm like, "Oh boy, you guys are <laughs> a load of fun." So yeah, I, again, I realize the silliness of the whole article, and I also realize it's not like hard hitting news, and there's a lot of scary things in the world. I just I like people who challenge some of these norms, and I actually, if you can get past the, you know the the comedy of it all, I think there's some really good suggestions here, and I think. I don't know. This is just conjecture. But I think if we can be committed, not all the time, always, but to be more, a little more strategic about having like meaningful, in-depth conversations once in a while, I, sh- mm-hmm. I actually think that's good for our soul. Like, I think it's good for yeah. our brain. You don't, have to, you don't have to live that level all the time. That would be exhausting. But like I had a buddy who I, I hadn't seen in almost a year. Good, good friend. He's like, hey, I'll drive to you, man. Drove way out of his way. And we just went for a walk, you know, and, and talked. And I was like, oh, man, hmm. I... I've missed those types of, you know, there, there's a depth of relationship and relational equity that was already there. But either way, I thought I thought it was funny, <laughs> but also maybe possibly useful. There's some people on our Facebook page that uh, that totally agree. We'd love to know. What do you think? How do you deal in social situations, especially now? Are you good at breaking the ice? Are you good at moving from small talk to some kind of depth? I would love to know how everyone else kind of interacts out there, especially during the time of COVID, because uh, these definitely are weird times and we're gonna we're gonna veer back towards the intense if that's okay coming up next an article out of the atlantic we're gonna talk a little bit about the collapsing levels of trust around us that's coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life coming up this hour we're gonna talk about trust political violence and then we'll wrap up the show talking about the science behind dressing for zoom you're listening to the common good hey everyone welcome back to the common good my name is ian simpkins along with brian Fromm. happy national orange wine day by the way brian okay yeah i don't have thoughts <laughs> on that one <laughs> i didn't know that was a thing orange wine yeah that is sounds it- that sounds really gross it sounds like wine that's gone bad, right? Yeah, that sounds that sounds gross. Not is nothing it, like the Apple Betty we talked about yesterday. So mm, you remember the Apple Betty? Yes, I, I is do. it is it actually made of oranges or is it just orange in color? All right, here I'm going to read it for you. Orange okay. wine, also known as skin contact white wine, skin fermented white wine, or amber wine, is a type huh. of wine made from white wine grapes where the grape skins are not removed as in typical wine production. So there you go. Oh, 
You learn something new every day. Nothing, I'll, I'll, I think it's orange in color. There are not actually oranges in it. Gotcha. I, was say, that's, I think that's just called orange juice, isn't it? That's yeah, just, exactly. That's called a mimosa. A mimosa, it's right. A mimosa. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'll, uh, I'll fill you in on the other holidays today later in the show. But I found this article out of The Atlantic, and it is, it is long. So we're, gonna, we're more going to discuss some of the ideas than actually get into the meat of the article. But uh, we'll, we'll read some quotes. But the headline was that... Um, it was really kind of making the case that the collapsing levels of trust are devastating America. And I thought that was so interesting. I remember watching a, a training from Andy Stanley years ago and him talking about, I mean, he's talking about, you know, church leadership and structures kind of in that field. But he said, trust was like the thing that cultivates not just like health in a team, but any, any level of success. He's like, without trust, you're, you're doomed. You're dead in the water. And so when I saw this whole article about, yeah, we, we are um, losing trust in each other and in our leaders and in even things more nebulous like, you know, political structures and ideology. Like it does feel like trust in a lot of ways is, to use their word, collapsing a bit. Um, I'd love to know, do you agree? Do you feel some of that? Oh, I do. I do. And uh, like you said, it, it's most uh, apparent, I think. Uh, in, in the trust for the political sphere and trusting uh, that, that either politicians have our best interests at heart or they're doing it for whatever purposes. I think we are always skeptical and cynical about politicians. But think about the way we talk about the media now, right? Like, oh, that's fake news or that's not true. And we're losing trust in the media. And I think it probably there are people who've lost trust in the church. And that is having an effect on the church. I do think that this Atlantic article by David Brooks, who is a phenomenal writer, and uh, tends to write really long, uh, I, I think is true. He's putting his finger on something that's a really big deal right now. And that's uh, not only have we lost trust, but can we regain trust? I think is a huge conversation to have right now. Well, and, and part of what he says here, he says the events of 2020, the coronavirus pandemic, the killing of George Floyd, militias, social media mobs and urban unrest were like hurricanes that hit in the middle of that earthquake. They did not cause the moral convulsion, but they accelerated every trend. They flooded the ravines that had opened up in American society and exposed every flaw. It's sort of like I've heard people like therapists and spiritual directors talk about, you know, if you're walking with a cup of coffee and someone like bumps into you. It's coffee that's going to spill out, right? That's sort of the, the mm -hmm. picture. And the moral of the story is usually like what's inside of you is going to come out when there's a disruption. And that's kind of what he's getting at here. He's like, listen, all of these things, the you know, the avalanche of, of bad news in 2020 um, is not causing the, the moral convulsion. I think that's an interesting phrase to use, but it's it certainly is like unearthing it or mm – -hmm maybe a better word to be like revealing it in a new way. And I think that's, that's part of what I find almost more staggering. Like, Oh gosh, there's, has there been this much unrest and this much hate and this much suspicion and this much division all along? We just sort of, we're just better behaved. Like we just mm. abided more succinctly to like social norms, but like since all this stuff kind of keeps pounding us like the is is the social fabric wearing wearing thin? Is that why we're seeing this right now, or or do you think it's actually like creating something new in us? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a great question because now you have so many more ways to see it, whether it be social media or other things. Um, I would probably I don't have a good answer to that I would probably tend to guess that it's always been there, and now just the pressures of 
social media and coronavirus and an election and all of this other stuff is kind of unearthing it. Um, but I'm not sure about that. How would you answer that question? Yeah, I, I, I tend to probably agree with the coffee cup analogy a little bit, but that said, and you know, we've talking, we've been talking about social dilemma, which by the way, have you watched that yet? No, but I saw an interview today with the president and CEO of Instagram, and he was talking about it. So I was like, all right, I really need to watch this. That's, yeah, that's practically the same as watching it. I do. I do. Th- I'm going to watch it. I promise. I believe you. Your promises mean nothing to me anymore, Ryan. <laughs> I know. Uh, my trust in you, speaking of which, I'm just kidding. Um, but the, yeah, the notion that like neuropathways are quite literally being rerouted and formed based on, you know, our interaction with technology, uh, how much news we consume like that's one of the that's one of the weird double-edged swords for us even in doing the show is like oh, i i feel the need to be informed about yeah. what's going on before we go live here and yet i also can feel some of how that's beginning to weigh on me personally like i don't i don't want to consume two hours of news a day anymore which i i don't really but i don't i don't want to have to be on social media to like mm-hmm figure out what's happening, you know, in my world or the world. And when I, when I look at like even the life of Jesus and some of, some of the exhausting patterns that a lot of us have found ourselves in, especially this year, I do think that it doesn't necessarily mean that there's not coffee in the cup anymore, but it's, it's certainly forming, it's forming us, I think, in ways that's, that are more profound than we realize. I'll just say that. Yeah, I think that's true. And you might be wondering, what exactly does he mean by social trust? I found this interesting. He said, social trust is the confidence that other people will do what they ought to do most of the time. Hmm. So in a restaurant, he says, I trust you to serve untainted fish and you trust me not to skip out on the bill. Social trust is a generalized faith in the people of your community. And and like how we always talk about polarization now, uh, I think what is often seems to be the case, at least, at least anecdotally, is that people have this sort of trust for people in their tribe, right? Like, uh, yeah. you know, I, I'm a Republican and I trust other Republicans, but boy, do I not trust the Democrats or I'm a Democrat, vice versa. I'm a uh, I'm a Christian, so I don't trust that other religious group. And I, and and the goal seems to be that, that we want to build that trust across these lines. But instead, it feels like we're more polarized. We're more tribal. And therefore, our trust is more limited. Uh, and we probably really trust deeply those people who are like us uh, in general, but tend to distrust uh, those people who aren't like us. And that's that to me is another I don't want to say frightening because I don't I mean, again, you know, the- theologically speaking, like do we how are we commanded to respond in the face of fear? I think fear is a human emotion, but I don't want to I don't want to keep going. They're like, oh, gosh, it's so frightening because that's not how I really feel. But yep. um, if. If some of the trajectory looks like a more deeply solidified tribalism, that's not great. You know, we, that, we've we been talking about that since day one of this show. Like echo chambers and confirmation bias is a real thing for all of us, regardless of your religion or politics. And we do well to stare it in the face, call it what it is, and to actively work against it, to work against some of that tribalism of like – Hey, unless you look, talk, act, think, vote and believe just like me, you're the enemy or you're at the very least your other. Um, I think we can all agree that doesn't lead to human flourishing at, at all. And part of what this article seems to be asserting is that we're we're uh, in danger of heading in that direction where I have more and more social trust only for people that I deem 
you know, trustworthy, which is part of that is like healthy assessment. Like, yeah, maybe maybe we don't trust everybody all the time. That's probably not a wise way to live your life necessarily. But if it's like reserved only to people that like you were saying are, quote unquote, in my tribe. Um, yeah, I could think of some inevitable places that lead that leads that don't sound all that healthy to me. I don't know. I don't know if you feel the same way or not. I do. And and then when we think about institutions, right, like just an example for people who might be confused out there, think about cable news, right? People who believe one thing tend to uh, a very specific cable news. So if you're on the right, you tend towards Fox News, you trust their news, you trust them. Yeah, and you immediately right. don't trust the other uh, MSNBC, CNN. So that's a very worldly example, but I think that gets at it and it, that goes across all spectrums right now. So I think this David Brooks article, I think is really important and one that we need to wrestle with. Yeah, I totally agree. Like always, that's on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think over there. Coming up next out of relevant magazine, the number of Americans who think political violence is justified is skyrocketing. That's coming up next here on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm on this National Mad Hatter Day. That's a real Something. thing. I played Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland when I was in junior high. Did you really? Mm-hmm. I thought you were homeschooled. Yeah, I still did theater and sports and, okay. and music and that kind of stuff. They still allow homeschoolers to do <laughs> theater, Brian. I don't, <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm picturing yeah. like the school play is what I'm picturing. You, you don't become like a, like a leper. Like, well, don't let them anywhere. <laughs> Yo, you want to be in our play? Wait, are you homeschooled? <laughs> yeah, right. Show your public school badge. Sorry, homeschooler. Get out of here. They called, they called me a homeschool again. <laughs> nope. uh, you've, you've used that one before. Do you know, do you know where the term Mad Hatter uh, comes from? I don't. Have the, I do not have the first idea. No idea. Well, well, you probably remember. Maybe this was a homeschool tidbit, but like, um, you know, so hat makers were called haberdashers, and the word haberdashery means like that's you know that's crazy. Like, oh, haberdashery. That's not really a thing we say anymore. But uh, apparently, there was mercury in the dyes of a lot of the hats that were being made in this time, and it would actually seep into people's brains and it was it was quite literally like turning people mad and so that's that's where the term haberdashery came to mean like insanity because it literally was affecting people's like neurology i think i'm right there i'm riffing off the top of my head so i could be i'm buying i could could be way wrong that's not we're talking about this segment though this segment's actually pretty serious so this is out of relevant magazine and the headline says yikes the number of americans who think political violence is justified is skyrocketing. And I think you'll be surprised by some of the findings here. Why don't you get us into it? Yep. It says one of the chief anxieties about the upcoming election is that in the event of a close call, violence could break out around polling stations near the White House or in other politically charged contexts. Both President Donald Trump and his Democratic rival Joe Biden have voiced concerns about political violence, though they both expressed concerns about the other side's proclivities for it. And mm. as it turns out, They both kind of have a point. The number of Americans who believe political violence might be justified has shot way up over the last three years. Notably, there's no huge discrepancy between political parties. Just 8% of both Republicans and Democrats said that their party was justified in using a little violence back in 2017. Today, 
that number has shot up to 33% of Democrats and 36% of Republicans. Hmm. Like that's a huge jump there. Similarly, in September, 44% of Republicans and 41% of Democrats said that at least a little violence should be justified if the quote other nominee wins the election in November. In June, only 35% of Republicans and 37% of Democrats said the same thing. Of those, 20% of Republicans and 19% of Democrats said that there would be a lot of justification for violence. Unsurprisingly, the more ideologically partisan you are, the more you tend to think violence might be justified. Hmm. The numbers of people who think a great deal of political violence is justified were higher among those who identified as, quote, very conservative or, quote, very liberal. Just 7% of voters who said they were simply conservative or liberal said political violence would be justified. And it closes this way. The study's authors caution that just because someone says they think violence is justified doesn't mean they're ready to take to the streets with a gun. There's a big difference between thinking something is justified and actually doing it. But they also caution that the trend is worrisome. And unfortunately, it only takes one person deciding to take matters into their own hands Hmm. for tragedy to strike, as we saw with Kyle Rittenhouse earlier this year. Portland and Louisville have also been partisan clashes with left-wing protesters laying siege to state buildings in Portland and white right-wing protesters storming Michigan State Capitol building. And so, man, those those findings, I mean, those are no small jumps, you know, 3% to 30% and uh, people who said that that they're very justified in violence. Like, um, this is worrisome because we are about to enter a really contentious election. That could very well be really close uh, that one of the sides, especially Donald Trump, has already called into question the legitimacy of, say, mail-in ballots or other things. And so that fire could be getting stoked from either side. And uh, you just think with with all that's going on right now, if there is a prolonged disagreement uh, over who actually won the election, uh, you could see how people who are especially passionate and especially partisan could turn to violence. And and I think that's a real possibility that we've all got to kind of get our minds around. Yeah. And I, I think the sentence that was most interesting to me in this article is the one that reads, unsurprisingly, the more ideological partisan you are, the more you tend to think violence might be justified. I have a bunch of thoughts as to why that is. I'd be curious to know why you think that is. Oh, because I think if you're ideologically super uh, conservative or super liberal, it becomes that much easier to think of the other side as just uh, as your enemy, as beyond like like you. If you're more down the middle, like let's say you're right of middle, right? You're like, I'm conservative, but I'm, I'm pretty centrist conservative. It's not a big leap on the on the continuum to go, Okay, I disagree with the guy who's liberal, but I can see how they get there. Like I could see, you know, we do share something. If you're way right or way left, you've got nothing in common in your mind with the other person. And so it becomes easy to see them as the enemy who's trying to categorically change the country and uh, who's who's like, I'll use the word again, your enemy. And when you think somebody's your enemy trying to upend everything that you hold dear, violence starts to enter into the realm of possibility. Yeah. And the other thing that I found interesting here, so most of the stats that you read, I know that can be hard to follow if you're just listening right now. So I would encourage you to go and actually read it. But it looked like in most of these studies, both currently and months ago, uh, Republicans were slightly higher than Democrats in their um, comfort level with violence. 
But that this one paragraph says the numbers of people who think a great deal of political violence is justified were higher among those who identified as very conservative, 16 percent or very liberal, 26 percent. Just 7 percent of voters who said they were simply conservative or liberal said political violence would be very justified. So in these polar extremes, it actually looked like the left was more comfortable, more felt that violence was more justified than the far, far right, which I, I thought that was interesting. Am I reading these numbers correctly? I think you are. Yeah. And I think um, as we wrestle with what these numbers mean, you know, you hear people and they're stoking the flames a little bit, but you'll hear reports uh, that just kind of paint a picture like we're heading towards a civil war or something like that. And uh, I I think that those listening who are Christ followers uh, we cannot be part of this problem. We've got to be part of the solution, right? We've got to be the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. We've got mm-hmm. to be people who are going across the aisle, who are, uh, even if you see the other people as your enemy, which I think is problematic, remember the words that Jesus had that were how we're supposed to, what we're supposed to do for our enemies, right? Uh, loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute you. And so, uh, I, I would hope that, that it, the Christ followers out there would not be the ones who are like, yeah, take up your, you know, take up the violence if we need to right now. Uh, because I do think, like you said in this article, I, I do think it paints a picture that especially on the fringes, uh, this could be a real powder keg coming up if this election breaks a certain way. Uh, and I think it's just something we all have to be a little bit prepared for. We at least have to think through this. Yeah. And I, again, I know that violence, uh, of any kind is strangely like a controversial topic for Christians. I know we talked a day or two ago about uh, Pope Francis and the death penalty. Uh, we were just talking a segment ago about, you know, kind of tribalism and where that can lead. Um, and know that there's a lot of thoughts. We really would love to hear from you. I, I do think like, like you're saying at the very least, I kind of, I, f- I feel more and more resolved lately to keep reiterating uh, enemy love is the way of Jesus, and mm-hmm. we will disagree probably on what that actually looks like. But like just over and over and over again, he just he just makes that so painfully clear. And I think there was there was a lot of unrest then too, and a lot of horrible mm-hmm. leaders mm-hmm. and a lot of tough things happening in this culture. But he keeps coming back to love of our enemy, and I just think we just can't we cannot get around that. Uh, try as we may. So that's on the Facebook page and we would love to know what you think. Here's a list for Brian Fromm coming up next from our friend, Carrie Newhoff, the top 10 things Pharisees say today. This will be fun. That's coming up next here on the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone. Welcome back to the common good on this national noodle day. I know that you'll be celebrating Brian. Big fan. I love big fan of noodles. Big fan of noodles. Cool noodles. Noodles for consumption. Yes. Any noodle, you're just you're just a winner. Mr. Noodle from Elmo. All of it. Mr. All Mr. Of it. Noodle, uh, a a dad term for your brain. Now that's using your noodle, <laughs> oh, right? That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh what else like what does it mean if you're like, oh, I'm just gonna noodle around a bit? Is that like doodle? Is that like what does that phrase mean? I'm just gonna noodle around a little bit. That's a good question. You've I, heard it, the phrase, or am I making it up? I think I've heard that phrase, and it's just kinda like I'm just gonna yeah, that's a good question. Like meander a little bit, like not a lot of intention. Maybe are you going to look it up? How did you Here know? Noodling around to ponder, consider, or speculate about something. A noun or pronoun can be used between noodle and over. Noodle here is slang for head or brain. Oh, okay. So that makes sense. As my mind wandered into daydream, I began noodling over the possibility of giving up my job and moving to Japan. 
Well, what? That's a great example. <laughs> That's, I clearly did not read that ahead of time. My goodness. Either way, National Noodle Day, our hats off to you. Uh, Carrie Newhoff, can't, can't say friend of the show officially because we haven't had him on yet, but uh, a little bird tells me that that is in the works. And by little bird, I mean our producer. Our producer. Um, Karen Newhoff, though, he, I don't know how he puts out this much content and still passes to church and does a podcast and writes books, but he does. And gosh darn it, if most of it isn't at the very least provocative, I, you know, we don't agree with everything that we talk about on the show hardly ever. Uh, but I thought this was a, a unique, interesting kind of take. It's called the top 10 things Pharisees say today. You want to get us into it? Yeah, he says, chances are, if you're a Christian, you want to be more like Christ. That's great. But are you? How would you know? A Barna study done a few years ago, he says, owned me. The hmm. survey revealed that 51% of North American Christians polled all possess attitudes and actions that are more like the Pharisees than they are like Christ. And so uh, that's what he's going to get on. He does say in defense of the Pharisees, well, almost a defense. He says, uh, probably uh, we make the Pharisees to be too much of a, the villains of the of the Gospels. Uh, he said to the fair. The Pharisees were, to some extent, well-meaning people. They studied the law. They knew it as well as anyone. Their downfall, among other things, centered on their self-justification and their self-importance. But there's evidence mm -hmm. that some Pharisees were sincerely seeking God. Think Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Right. They arranged Jesus's burial. Similarly, the mission of the early church was radically advanced by a converted Pharisee, that being the Apostle Paul. And so... uh this idea that the Pharisees, sometimes we make it so black and white, like, oh, they were the bad guys of the gospel. No, they were like yep. chasing after God. Like they want, they were the religious guys. And it, it came back to their inability really collectively to see their own need. Uh, that's where Jesus kind of went at it with them. But he says, uh, 10 things today's Pharisees would say. So Newhoff is basically saying, all right, if the studies show that a lot of us are more Pharisaical than even, you know, Christ-like, which is problematic, what will that look like in our day? What would that look like? So number one, he says, uh, if he knew the Bible as well as I did, his life would be better. Yep, there it is. Mm. Judgment and self-righteousness rolled up into a nice, neat little package. I really want people to read their Bibles, but when I get smug and superior about reading mine, I miss the point. Arrogance is not a Christian virtue. There you go. Oh, boy. Number two is coming for Brian Fromm. I follow the rules. And if you do, he writes, awesome. Thank you. Uh, but that's not what got you into Christianity, is it? You got in because of the mercy which Christ extended to you when you broke the rules. Following the rules doesn't keep you in the love of God any more than it got you into the love of God. So why follow the rules? Following the rules is a response to the love of God. And your attitude should be one of gratitude, amazement, and humility. That's a good one. Number three. Uh, and so he's making quotes here. This quote is, you shouldn't hang around people like that. I understand oh that we have to choose friends for our kids carefully, but when applied to adults, this thought process stinks. One of the reasons many churches aren't growing is because Christians don't know any non-Christians. If many of us were preaching the parable about being the salt of the earth today, we'd switch it up and command the salt to stay in its hermetically sealed box and never touch any food. Of course, <laughs> Jesus said the opposite. Salt needs to get out of the box to season food. And Jesus paid a price for that among religious people. They couldn't fathom why he would hang out with tax collectors, hookers, and other notorious sinners. When was the last time you hung out with a prostitute? That's a great question. Uh, convicting, isn't it? Disturbing, isn't it? Yes, it is. Carrie Newhoff writes. Oh, man. Number four. Are we going to get to all these? Well, just we'll, we'll do the best we'll we can. There. Number four. God listens to my prayers. 
He says, prayer is amazing, and we do trust that God listens to our prayers. But as we've said before in this space, prayer is not a button to be pushed nearly as much as it is a relationship to be to be pursued. That's a good line. The smugness and certainty with which many Christians talk about prayer must strike people as weird. The biblical portrait of prayer is as much about broken people embracing the mystery and majesty of a forgiving God as much as it is about anything. When prayer becomes a predictable formula that manipulates or controls God, you can be pretty sure you're no longer praying. Oh, mm. snap, Carrie Newhoff. Number five. Sure, I have a few issues, but that's between me and God. And if you keep it between you and God, people will never be able to relate to you. Uh, perfect on the outside and flawed on the inside. That's the accusation Jesus levied against the Pharisees. When people on the outside look to pretend to be perfect Christians, it does three things. It alienates them. It makes them think you're fake. It suggests God can't help them. The antidotes, transparency, vulnerability, honesty. When you let people know you don't have it all together, but you've got, but you've met an amazing God, many people suddenly want to join in. Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and read the uh, the next five real quickly and then let you choose one or two to hone in. By the way, this if you're just joining us, this is Carrie New list of 10 things Pharisees would say today. Number six, they just need to work harder. I've heard that one. Number seven, of course I'm a Christian. Number eight, more people need to stand up for Christian values. Ooh, we might go for that one. Uh, number nine, I'm simply more comfortable with people from my church than I am with people who don't go to church. And number 10, people who don't go to church can come if they want to. Any one of those strike you as uh, particularly intriguing? Yeah, I thought number seven was interesting. Of course, I'm a Christian. He says, he quotes Tim Keller. He says, few people are better at explaining the difference between moralistic, self-righteous religion and authentic Christianity than Tim Keller. And he says, Keller wrote this, of course, I'm a Christian. Uh, and that underneath this is a pernicious idea that they have somehow earned the favor of God by their obedience and faithfulness. Kind of like when someone looks at your life and they're asking if you're a believer, of course I'm a, look at me, right? <laughs> look at me. Of course, you know, I'm a follower yeah. of Jesus. Uh, and that's an interesting one, I think, and, and gets, uh, gets back to kind of some self-righteousness that if you could look at someone and be like, of course, just look at my life. Of course, I'm a Jesus follower. <laughs> Obviously, like, I'm a, right. <laughs> problematic. Which one stood out to you? Well, I think I made a noise for number eight. More people need to stand up for Christian values. Let me just read a little bit. He says, as Christendom slips away in our lifetime here in the West, we long for what used to be. But moving forward, we will have more in common with our first century counterparts in Christianity than with our 20th century forebears. They lived out their faith in a world that didn't share their values, but rather than fight their non-Christian counterparts, they laid down their life for them. While some people might get very angry and demand that we stand up for Christian values, I think the biblical argument runs the other way. As I outlined here, maybe one of the best things Christians today can do is let non-Christians off the moral hook. Christians mm -hmm. should live out Christian values deeply and authentically, but why would we hold non-Christians to a standard they don't believe in anyway? Jesus and Paul never appeared to do this, not even once. That one, to me, was a little bit of a, a mic drop moment from Kerry Newhoff. I don't, I don't know if you want to tackle one more. I think the one that you read there is an important one because we hold people to these standards that they've never signed up for in the beginning. Uh, yeah. And then number nine, I'm simply more comfortable with people from my church than I am with people who don't go to church. It's great to be friends with people from your church. That's totally. I don't think the point of this. In fact, that sort of community and connection is really important. In many ways, it's at the backbone of being a church. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be um getting outside to put a language we've been using the last couple of segments, getting outside our tribe a little bit to, uh, to not just befriend people, but for a purpose, but then also to just live out the love of Christ in people's lives. I think that's important. And I think it becomes lazy to be like, Nope, I'm just going to be with my people 
And uh, I, so again, I think this is an important one. It's a great list here again by Carrie Newhoff, as you said. Yeah, I totally agree. We're going to, we're going to take a bit of a lighter turn to wrap up the show. If that's okay. I found this one out of a Wall Street Journal is called The Science Behind Work from Home Dressing for Zoom. What you wear while working actually matters. That's coming up next here on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good for the final segment. What did you used to say about the? Because we used to do interweb insanity here. What did you used yeah. to say every time? Time land to land plane. the plane, yeah. And then you, then you'd get on a riff, and then you'd come up with some real weird word pictures. It usually right. went land the plane, dock the boat, and then the weirdness really took off. That's like, a very uh, good point. Yep. Do you remember? Yep. Do you remember any of those? Ah, uh, yeah. So it was always some sort of transportation. Uh, so lock the bike, I think, was once one. It wasn't uh, always transportation, though. It definitely was. You you definitely had a few in there. You're like, time to squeeze the orange. Oh, <laughs> we need shoot, to get back to these. Shoot, yeah, chew the gum. Yeah, <laughs> it was always extra fun in person too because I I could see in your eyes. I'm like, oh no, he's gonna go on a riff, and then. <laughs> After the first two, like the panic would set in. I think all preachers have this, by the way, when you like step away from your notes, thinking you remembered what you wanted to say. And then you just draw a blank and you're like, how do I get back to that podium? How do I how do I fill the time and not make it look like I completely blanked on everything? I'm sure you've had those moments, right? Yo, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Where you're just thinking to yourself, I don't know what to say at all right now. <laughs> Why are these people staring at me? Oh, I yeah. have a microphone. Oh, dear me. So, yeah, <laughs> a little glimpse into the insanity that is the mind of a pastor. Uh, again, just a quick reminder. Happy National Noodle Day, National Mad Hatter Day, National Orange Wine Day. There's a bunch of other like actual serious days, but, you know, where's the fun in that? Um, I did want to I thought this article was interesting especially since like zoom and FaceTime it's, it's a reality that I feel like most of us are living in, whether we like it or not, regardless of where in the country you're listening from, at least for a, for a stretch there, it was like everybody, all of us somewhere are having to deal with some kind of digital reality in a, in a different way than we had prior. And so this out of the, the wall street journal, it says the science behind work for home dressing uh, for Zoom, what you wear while working actually matters. Research Researchers studying enclosed cognition say <laughs> your clothing choices at home can affect productivity and performance. I remember having a conversation with my buddy Rob, who had launched a photography business. So he's, you know, he's a business owner. He's an entrepreneur. It's his business that when he would go to the office just to edit photos, he would like put on a suit. I was really? Like, Isn't it just you at the office? He's like, no, no yeah. But when when I dress like this, though, it actually tricks my brain in a couple of different important ways that I actually end up being much more productive. And then, you know, the added benefit of someone happens to like drop in or drop by, but he, he was really intent on that. And I was always really impressed by that. I think about when I was a kid, you know, when we started doing homeschooling, we were, we, one of the things we loved about it was like, oh, I could do it from the couch, do it from my bed if I feel like, but we had other friends whose parents like bought them desks mm-hmm. and they still had to be up at, you know, at six thirty or seven, and sit at their desk while doing homeschooling. I remember thinking, that that takes away all the fun. That's not quite a clothing thing, but uh, yeah, I'd be, I'd love to know what you think of this concept. Like, do you think there is some science behind what do they call enclosed cognition? It does does what you wear actually affect the work that you do? I think it does, especially to a point. I was just thinking when you said about homeschooling, uh, 
when our kids did remote learning last year at the, when everything shut down for COVID, they would just kind of lay on their beds or lay anywhere, you know, do whatever. And now when they started this year with remote learning, we were like, we got them each desks for their room, right? We got them that like, we wanted to create an environment that was a little more like, you know, Hey, you're doing something. And, and I think when it comes to clothing, I could totally see this man when I'm just at home and I'm in sweatpants and a t-shirt and haven't mm-hmm. showered, uh, I tend to be lazy. I tend to be like, in my mind, I'm going, I'm not doing anything important right now. You know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of an off day. And so, uh, you know, I'm sure that for some people, all it means is like taking a shower or putting on jeans and something. And for your buddy, Rob, it was putting literally on a suit, right? Uh, which I think is important. And so, I, yeah, I, I think it makes total sense. And, and um, I do remember when we were first working from home, when COVID started, uh, I did get to the point where I realized, yeah, if I just like never get ready, it really kind of affects the level of work that I do. It hmm. really does. And so, I, yeah, I totally buy this. How about you? It seems like you buy this, but you think this is right on? Yeah, but I, I mean, I'm just re- wearing a wrestling singlet right now. So I feel like <laughs> I feel like a hypocrite uh, taking this angle here. No, yeah, I, I think it's actually a very it's a very fascinating conversation. Somebody maybe saw the headline, you know, when we posted it, thought, well, that's a silly discussion. I don't think it's silly at all. One of the weeks that you were on vacation, I think last year, uh, a friend of mine is a therapist, Rachel Shannon was in. And one of the things that she talked about was back when things were normal, the importance of when you come home from work, change your clothes. And I asked her why. And she said, there is something that happens in your brain when you, like when you remain in your work clothes, even if your work environment is casual, that will still treat part of your home interactions like it's work. Now, that's obviously different now when a lot of us are working from home. But I remember thinking, like, because our, you know, our workplace environment was pretty casual. I was like, well, I'm just in jeans and a T-shirt. What's the point of changing when I get home? I, I tried doing it. It made a real difference because really? you, you don't want to be in work mode when you're like with your wife and with your kids. Right. I got, no, I want to be dad right now. I want to be like present with them. And it sounds like a lot of hocus pocus, <laughs> to be honest, at first blush. But I, I actually found it to be really helpful for like trying to stay engaged. And this article seems to assert that there's actually brain science behind it. Yeah, they said it was totally run by experiments, too, which are fascinating. They used white lab coats to test the impact of clothes on psychological processes. He said in a series of experiments, subjects competed on attention tests. The first pitted a group wearing lab coats against a group wearing street clothes and those wearing lab coats performed better. In the second and third test, one group was told that white lab coats were doctor's coats. Another was told they were painter's coats Hmm. and another wore street clothes while only looking at a white lab coat. In all those tests, those who thought they were wearing doctor's coats had superior results. The research showed that the combination of wearing certain clothes and their symbolic meaning led to a more focused attention. He said that theory has held up remarkably well. So even in their minds, if they said these lab coats represent this, while another group had the same lab coats going, it represents this. It totally changed how like the attention and how they were able to do. And so uh, you being Mr. Brain Science, I'm sure love this, that <laughs> it is it is the, the the experiments say that our brains actually function differently based on, you know, these in this experiment, lab coats, what that lab coat means, just being in street clothes, maybe being in some sort of like, you know, just kind of schlubby uh, clothes that you'd wear just around the house. Like it actually matters to our brains, to our to our level of attention and the, the productivity we're able to have. I think this is this is pretty 
uh, impressive because I think we intuitively know this. You and I just telling stories. They're going, yeah, this makes sense. But now to actually see it experimentally proven, I think is fascinating. Yeah, there's another paragraph here. It says, in other research, a 2015 study found that dressing more formally for work leads to higher levels of abstract, big picture thinking associated with someone in a powerful position. The study's co-author, Michael Slepian, associate professor of leadership and ethics at Columbia Business School, is beginning to look at whether this still holds for people working from home. Quote, there are a lot of good reasons the findings could still apply today. All you need to do is just dress up a little bit more formally than you would at home Normally, which I, I, again, somebody hearing this might think, does that really matter? What's the big takeaway? Why spend time talking about this? I don't actually have any big takeaway or any like theological truism to kind of wrap up the show with. I just thought, yeah, this is interesting. And I've been thinking a lot about mental health lately because we're in this series about mental health. And there are obviously for a lot of us like big things that probably need to change. And if you're spiraling, you know, caught in an addiction or, you know, find yourself really in a dark place, like seek help, get the help that you need. I also think that for a lot of us, it's small tweaks. It might be something simple like, man, I'm going to take what I wear a little more seriously. I'm going to be a little more intent to drink enough water or to go for a walk or start a gratitude journal. Like these really mm-hmm. s- seemingly small things, I think they actually really add up. And as we kind of head towards first an election and then winter, uh, I think, I, I just think these like small tweaks are actually going to turn out to be much more substantive than maybe we would otherwise think. Yeah, I agree. And uh, we just want to be helpful. So again, that's posted on the Facebook page. We would love to know what you guys think. You can weigh in there or you can send us a message. And that concludes, my friends, Tuesday's show. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. on AM 1160 or wherever it is you get your podcasts. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hope for your life.